Hello, I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. In 2017, we began the Fireplace Series, a series of interdisciplinary conversations, impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity. Together, they explore common and uncommon ground. The fireplace conversation you are about to hear took place on the 16th of November, 2018, between Dr. Andrew McCartney, Professor Emerita of the Concordia University Centre for Sensory Studies, and Professor Laura Murray of the Department of English and the Cultural Studies Interdisciplinary Graduate Program at Queen's University. The topic they address is Sounding Roots and Places. My name is Laura Cameron. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning. The conversation today is entitled Sounding Roots and Places. It's visually very lovely to be in this cozy place with the fireplaces encircling us on this snowy day. But the world is also heard as much as it is seen. And sound also deeply affects our sense of place. We have with us today addressing shared interests, particularly in the wider worlds of sound and ways of navigating it, two very distinguished scholars. Dr. Andrew McCartney has come the furthest. <laughs> she hails from the Center for Sensory Studies at Concordia University. Through her background in ethnomusicology, communication, and cultural studies, she thinks and writes about electroacoustic music, sound art, and sound recording fields as cultures, considering what kinds of interpretive routines are acceptable within these disciplines and how aesthetic and professional discourses are established. Internationally renowned, Andrew McCartney is one of Canada's foremost experts in sound walking and sonic experience. Dr. Laura Murray is one of Queen's treasures. Acclaimed educator, Laura is professor of English and Cultural Studies here at Queen's University. Her research has ranged from indigenous and colonial literatures and history to copyright policy. She is also a musician. Recently, she has been focusing on finding, documenting, and sharing the neglected or hidden histories of Kingston, both in her teaching about the indigenous and settler histories of Kingston, and also in her Swamp Ward and Inner Harbor research project. This has involved the creative use of oral history and the production of walking tours and podcasts, spurring as well much curiosity in the possibilities of sound. Thank you both for coming. Thank you, Laura. Um, so, Andra and I met this summer uh, through Dylan Robinson uh, because when he asked Andra to collaborate with him next term on a sound walk with his students, uh, he copied me on the email somehow. And uh, then she listened to my podcasts, and then I, I needed a place to stay, and uh, that was kind of a blind date. So this is really our second not-so-blind date, <laughs> yes. um, when I showed up at her door, and then we just talked for many hours. But we haven't uh, talked specifically about each other's work, really, I mean, at least not with close attention to any of its details. So uh, that we're going to do that for the first time today. So it is kind of we'll see what happens. Um, it's a great opportunity to, to, to have the, the chance this week to just listen to so much of your audio and repeatedly and read some of your things. And for me, it's a real treat, especially because although 
I am a musician and I like listening and I like talking and I like walking too. Um, so I have some things in common with Andra, but I haven't thought in such a focused way as she does, such a philosophical and also kind of practitioner way about sound. And I realize also listening to her work and reading about it that I tend to be focused on human-produced sound, whether it's music or speech or writing. I'm an English professor, really, you know. That's, that is my, my, uh, where my, what my pay comes for, I suppose. And, uh, and so uh, my most disciplined listening has gone to, to the, those kinds of human-produced sounds. And I think it's so uh, important in this moment and also just interesting and important generally to, to think about all the other sounds around us that are much more numerous and much more um, powerful and scary and reassuring than the human-produced noises. So I think in a broad sense, that's what I really enjoyed, you know, in thinking about Andra's work this week. Um, so we've decided how we're going to proceed is that we each chose... Uh, a couple of really brief selections from each other's sound work that we'll play and then maybe comment and get comments and ask questions about. And then we'll leave some time for you to ask questions as well. And um, I was just at the Oral History Association meetings in Montreal, and uh, I've been to that meeting two or three times, and one of the things that really bugs me about those meetings is that there isn't enough sound played. And uh, so people end up talking about their work, but but they, they're not really presenting their data. They'll often quote from things people said or whatever, but uh, this doesn't really allow the people who are attending to make their own engagements and think, oh, uh, I have another idea about that, or, and, and really you're hiding half your data, right? I mean, you're, again, you're just keeping the words and you're not presenting all the other information that, that may be there to, to be uh, used. So we wanted to make sure we played some sound. And uh, the first piece, we're gonna, I'm going to start with a sound piece right off the bat, I think. And uh, this is one that I guess won't be a complete surprise to Andra because it's a, a bit of a work in progress, and it's the only bit of that work in progress she sent me, so she, she's going to maybe not be that surprised. But I think you will be surprised. Um, and the reason why I think you will be surprised is that this comes from the second of two projects that Andra will have done, uh, <laughs> that are drawn from cross-Canada train trips. And, yeah, well, you'll, you'll see why, whether I'm right that you'll be surprised. And the only thing that I think I'll say in preface is I'll, I'll read you some words that Andra provided me that may become part of a script. Do you yeah. want to read these yourself? Oh, sure. Yeah. So they, they, these words may become some part of... These. Uh, uh, of a script in this larger piece. And then, we'll, and then we'll hear the little clip of the piece. Okay, great. We arrive at Jasper, and I wonder, is it early morning mist, all that gray? And the steward says, wear a jacket on the platform. It's cold today. Across from the station, boutiques wait for tourist folk. Islands in a sea of asphalt. Mountains hidden in a huge gray cloak and the acrid smell, and I cough and cough, widespread smoke. 
summer not hot enough for you? We are looking at record high temperatures, and in the summertime, that's pretty significant. These records go all the way back into the 1800s. So, yeah, it could be the warmest temperatures on those dates that we've we've seen in over 140 years. Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. And it's time now for Precision Weather with meteorologist Phil Spivak. Another beautiful sunny day today, Phil. But I guess if you're one of those guys who's um, really looking for some moisture to help replenish uh, uh, soil moisture reserves, then uh, this clear sky and warm temperatures isn't what you're looking for at all. The Shovel Lake wildfire is one of the biggest. It continues to grow. Thousands of people living in the area have been evacuated or put on evacuation alerts. Good mornings remain in Real effect for the bulk of the province this morning as do air quality advisories due to that wildfire smoke drifting in from Alberta and BC. Died when the EF4 tornado tore through the area and destroyed his home. His family says the retired teacher and farmer called at least two family members who warned them of the storm beforehand. Cloudy Friday, 60% chance of shower. Showers, a high of 16. Cloudy Saturday, 60% chance air of showers. Air advisories due to smoke from wildfires continue for Special much air of the quality province. statement remains the in effect for White Fork, Grand Cache, Jasper, Hinton, and Edson. Highs up to 26 and mainly sunny with local Edson, smoke in the peace. In the central interior, in Grand Cache, Good morning. Weather details are coming up. The smoke is going to set in today. How long will it last? Try to answer that for you coming up in just a few moments. Plus music from Blackhawk around the corner. But hey, there's a big conversation last night so I, I think part of my surprise came because I had listened to the previous piece that Andrea's done, uh, which has a lot of train sounds in it, <laughs> you know? And, and when I just, you know, pressed play on this and was taken into this kind of assault of these weather men, um, uh, it, it wasn't what I expected. Um, but I, I think it's so powerful. Like, in fact, I can hardly bear to listen to it. I just think, especially at a high volume, it's just... So maybe, I, I guess, the first thing to, to, to just open it up is, yeah, what, what, where does this come from for you? And, and... Well, it, that, first, that first trip that I did, um, I did in a fairly linear way. So I was, uh, you know, I, I did recordings on the train, various locations, especially, I got off at stations and did recordings. Um, it was a winter trip, so it was quite different in many ways. Um, and it, and it, I, liked, I liked what it, what I had created back then, but then thinking back on it, um, I thought uh, it, it was too linear. I wanted something that, that dealt more with um, with, the, with my sonic experience on the train uh, beyond the, the literal sonic experience, I guess. Um, and in that first trip, I had made a number of um, recordings from the radio. Um, and I used that, uh, I what I learned from that to do the recordings this time. So. Um, I, uh, I, st I started to think much more about what I was getting from the radio. And then the biggest thing that affected this trip was that as I was leaving, uh, as I was leaving Toronto, I was very aware of the, the wildfires. I'd been, I'd been paying attention to the news, and I knew that it, we would be traveling through an area where a wildfire had been just two days before. Um, uh, in northern Ontario. 
And I also knew that we would be, we would be um, uh, ex experiencing something about wildfires out, out west. And indeed, it turned out that the eight days that I spent in BC, uh, um, I, I took a return train trip, and the eight days that I spent in BC were the, the longest weather advisory in BC history. So it was a chance of timing. And once I was aware of that chance of timing, once I was going across and realizing um, uh, the limits of the widespread smoke in some cases. So at the end of that, at the end of that uh, section that you heard, uh, uh, there's a reference to hockey. And that, that was, they went, they, they started off the, the, the clip with, we're going, to talk, we're, we're going to let you know uh, how far the smoke is going today. But I noticed that as soon as we got out of the space or time of the smoke, it was gone from the, from the radio, completely. And um, yeah, I started to think about that, the ephemerality of discourse around wildfires. And, um, and then I... I, uh, I started to want to do more research on widespread smoke. And it was such a big, um, such a big issue that I decided to focus on a very specific thing, which was the Shovel Lake fire, because I had happened to get that one recording where uh, somebody was talking about a specific fire that was happening. So uh, then I went back and uh, started digging uh, for information on the Shovel Lake fire. And that, uh, um, that research that I've been doing is going to form the next section of the, uh, of the piece after the, uh, after the weather reports that, that you heard, that I recorded from the radio. Um, the next section really deals with the Shovel Lake fire and some of the issues that I found uh, were raised through that. Um, uh, should I say more, well, or should I, I just stop there? I guess I, uh, my, furthering my response to this little segment, um, I think what's disturbing to me about it is the banality of the weather report and how, in a sense, these guys, as you say, they, they talk like this every day, and it doesn't matter what the weather is. It doesn't matter what the context is. You know, it's always going to go on to hockey next. They've got exactly a certain amount of time. They've got a certain kind of voice. they got a certain kind of... And they're all guys. Yeah. And they've got this kind of... They are so not hearing what they're saying. It, it, and, and, and the way you've overlapped all their voices so that it becomes sort of this being buried under these voices yes. to represent this global disaster. And, and life goes on. And as you say, then you, you're in the... And the other thing I was thinking about radio uh, um, weather is that sometimes it's the only local content on a local weather station, right? Because they're owned by conglomerates and so on. Yes. Is that, so you get that 30 seconds on the hour and on the 15 minutes or whatever. That's the only you know, way, I suppose, that they distinguish themselves, one radio station to the other. Yes. So thinking about representing space... Um, I guess certain radio stations come in and out of phase. I don't know what the term is for that as you're scanning the record, the, 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 uh, the radio, but then they're kind of all the same too. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on radio. Is radio or, or, or the, 
the weather, uh, weather reports, something that you well, you know, reflecting on in this way. Definitely, the the first time I did the the trip, I found that. I mean, I found the weather reports and realized that I was I was searching for them to get some sense of where I was in space, um, and to and to record where I was in space too, um, and also the the. the I think the drama of the very cold uh, temperatures in the winter also appealed to me. Um, but this time, the, the focus on weather became a different thing because of because of these uh, because of the widespread widespread smoke um, references over and over and over again. And I did think there was there were some differences that I heard. So the difference between commercial radio and CBC in terms of speed, so commercial radio being faster, and then the, the agricultural weather which uh, in the prairies, which was um, on AM radio, was by far the slowest pace. Um, and he, and, it, and he, he talks more about, um, I mean, I, did, I only included a small clip of it, but he talks in much more detail about the land through the weather. Um, but, but the overall effect that I had when I started putting them together was this overwhelming um, weight of widespread smoke that I wanted. I really wanted that, but then for it to disappear with hockey at the end. Mm -hmm. I also wanted that. Um, um, yeah. So, so that's, I did find some differences, but overall, it's very masculine and very fast and very ephemeral, really, mm -hmm. uh, what, what they're saying. Uh, I guess another question I have about this, this exercise, in a way, I love the idea of repeating, uh, a, you know, a certain um, premise or, or prompt for, for an audio documentary. Um, the Trans-Canada train trip is so overdetermined with certain ideas of pilgrimage or recreating of colonization or, I don't know, Gordon Lightfoot or whatever. Uh, and uh, it, so it's kind, of a, it's kind of a nervy thing to do, uh, a, a documentary about a Trans-Canada train trip. trip. So, so how, how do you, do, do you think that you're in dialogue with those pre-expectations, whether they are nationalist or critical that, that might accrue to that act of taking the train across Canada? Yeah, well, certainly um, there's another section of the piece uh, that I haven't got as far with at this point, um, which is to do with the history of nationalism and radio. Um, so, for instance, the first national network, radio network in North America was on the trains that crossed Canada. So um, they, they, there's a very strong connection there between nationalism and radio that, that I really feel the need to address in this piece. Um, and it's for a, uh, um, a radio art um, festival called Deep Wireless uh, that is uh, run by New Adventures in Sound Art from uh, South River, Ontario. And um, South River is one place that uh, used to have rail access and doesn't any longer for passengers. 
and uh, they are interested in, in perhaps installing this in a, uh, a um, railway car or a train station, and a, a no longer used train station, perhaps. As a, um, so, so knowing that um, helps me uh, think through this, this issue of nationalism and radio and, and how I'm going to address it. Um, partly through, um, through thinking back to the construction of the railway and, uh, and, the, um, uh, and the work of the, the, of the immigrants and First Nations people who worked on the, the, uh, the railway when it was being constructed. So that's, that's one of the things that I want to think about actually using a quote from the soundings, um, from the soundings curatorial score, uh, the sub-frequency of colonial labor, which I found really resonant mm. and, uh, and that I really want to address in the piece. And that, those words are Dylan Robinson's. Um, so so uh, that is definitely something that I want to address, but, um, and I've done, uh, I've done some research on it uh, so far, but uh, it's not as developed as mm -hmm. the part that you, you're hearing here, which is already a fragment anyway, yeah. And I guess it will relate to the sound walking that you'll be doing at Queen's in, in the winter, sort of trying to, trying to hear things that may, may be difficult to hear, um, both difficult in that they may be politically resisted or that they may not be present to produce sound anymore. Um, Walking around Matt Corey Hall and so on. So yes. This, yes. How to, I don't know, how to represent in sound things that may, things and people that may no, no longer be present in some way is a really challenge, but a fascinating paradox. It, it seems is. like you're good at that. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I mean, it, I, I, uh, it's something that I work on and I, I still feel I have a lot to learn about it, but I, I'm, trying to find ways to, um, to represent uh, things that are not, um, not so evident sonically, yeah. I guess I'm interested partly because I feel it's a, I guess I could say a blind spot of mine, but that would be synesthesia, mixing up different senses, but in that when I'm trying to think about representing the history of this place, I'm often thinking about how the sounds that are around here are just so simply different than they would have been even 50 years ago, yes. and that it's, it's, it's eluding me to, sound as a medium is, is, is really hard for me to mobilize without kind of fakery or... Uh, I'm, I'm always just thinking about how different things sound. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I got a lot of um, inspiration from a digital, uh, digital um, uh, compilation of photographs and sound um, done, by, uh, done in Montreal. So it's the McCord Museum. It's one of their digital um, uh, exhibitions. So a photographer um, in the 1990s took photographs in the same place and from the same perspective as a photographer, uh, Notman, from the uh, eight, 1800s. And then a, uh, a sound, uh, sound artist 
worked with historians to look at the photographs from the 1800s and say, okay, what would that sound like and what would that sound like? And to try to create that scene with sound, uh, just, just with historical uh, archival recordings and, and historical help. And, um, and I thought that that was a really, Diane LeBeuf is the, uh, the sound artist who did this. And, uh, and that was a really inspiring um, collection because, I mean, I, I think there are 30 images. Each, each sound recording is only 15 seconds long for, so you can easily mouse back and forth between the two photographs. But it's very effective. And I think it was working with historians that, that, that helped her uh, to do that well. Yeah. I will look at that. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely definitely worth taking a look at. I mean, that that exhibition now is probably 15 years old, and I think it's still just very strong. It's something that, that I've recommended to people consistently because I, I thought that the work she did was so, so good. And in a broader sense, her work is very good. I mean, she's done a, a, quite a bit of installation work as well. Well, should I turn it over to you now and sure. see, yeah. see where you want to yeah. take us? <laughs> yeah, let's see. Let's hear the next. Uh, uh, but before you start that, Matt, I, I just want to explain a little bit. And um, I, uh, I'm so glad that we met this, this summer. And, uh, and it was really interesting getting to know you through, uh, through podcasts initially. Um, because I could hear how... You introduced your own experience, but not too much. And, uh, and I could also hear how the, the um, interviews were uh, very relaxed and very, people were very willing to talk about things deeply, which is, is unusual. And I wonder how much of it is partly to do with the fact that you're somewhat of an insider in that, in that uh, you're a resident in the Swamp Ward and have been for many years. Um, so um, I found the podcast very interesting and a very, uh, very good way to meet you and a very um, enticing way to meet you in that I wanted to get to know you more and find out more about your work through, through that. So I'm, I'm loving this opportunity. Um, this first excerpt we're going to hear isn't exactly one excerpt, it's two, so I cheated a bit. So uh, there's an excerpt from early on in the podcast, and then there's another excerpt from much later in the same podcast. And I was interested in both of them. So what you'll hear is the first excerpt, a couple of seconds of silence, and then the second one. Welcome to a beautiful day in the Swamp Ward. Down a gentle slope from here is the Cataraqui River on its way to meet Lake Ontario. A causeway crosses the river, connecting Kingston to the east. And the hum of cars on the causeway is a sound that people who live here know well. Hot summer nights, brisk winter mornings, it's always there. 
In six episodes, this podcast series introduces you to the Swamp Word through its sounds and its voices. I've spent a lot of time talking with people about this place, and I want to share with you what makes it special, what makes it ordinary, what makes it real. Swamp Word, yeah. It was like another universe. We used to go and raise proper Hellas kids in there. A lot of stuff like that went on back then. This was years and years ago. I never came to mind what we did at the time. I knew we were in the swamp. It was swamp. So then we got nicknamed Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. We're just, we have a new machine here. We're just trying to learn how to use it for our recordings. Now, wait a minute, I want to find out about you too. Oh, okay, that's fair. Where are you from? I mean, uh, what, who's behind all this? I'm behind it. <laughs> You're behind it. Um, so I'm from Toronto, I grew up in Toronto, mm -hmm. but I lived here for 20 years. Well, you're part Kingstonian. I'm, I'm getting there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I live on Raglan Road. Hey, so did I. Okay, I'll just move this so it doesn't rattle too much. Um, so Claude was my neighbor, and Marie, his wife, and they used to just tell me things about the neighborhood. And um, I just got really curious to learn more about it. That's what more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So what I really like about the second uh, excerpt uh, is, is that you're challenged to give an or origin story at that point. And it does sound completely out of the blue that you weren't expecting this because you're setting up equipment. And I also like hearing the sound of the equipment being set up in the background. Um, and I'm wondering, now that you listen back to it, what do you think of the origin story now? Mm -hmm. um, well, uh, what did I say? I said that I met Claude and Marie and I started talking with them, that I'm from Toronto. When I first moved um, to Kingston, well, it wasn't the first time I moved to Kingston. When I second moved to Kingston, um, or third, maybe it was the third time I moved to Kingston, I moved um, into a house on Skeleton Park and uh, when I met my neighbor, Claude, across the way, I met him because he hauled us up in front of the Property Standards Committee because our porch wasn't properly painted. And uh, as every, every piece of grass on his lawn was carefully pruned, I knew immediately it was him. <laughs> and uh, so I, I went over to introduce myself. And um, he said, yeah, we heard people from Toronto about that house. So, so, so saying that I'm from Toronto, like in the neighborhood, actually, you know, is, is, is significant and in some ways is, I think, respecting their idea of what an outsider is, somebody from Toronto. And, you know, it's even more the case now that the real estate market in that neighborhood, the prices have gone up and, you know, people in Toronto find them cheap, but people who live in Kingston don't find them cheap. So, uh, there, you know, there's a whole kind of economics to, to that and everything, and also professors starting moving into that neighborhood. Like, I was in that way, I'm part of the gentrification of that neighborhood. So I suppose that's a real, that is not explored in that clip, but to me that's, you know, something that I hear and that I do talk with people about. Um, and it's interesting how she was so quick to want to see me as an insider. Yes. You know, want to maybe see her as one of, as one of her own. Um, but uh, 
you know, I, I guess I, I am and I'm not. The other thing about my first conversation with Claude Clement was that um, he asked me the name of my husband, and, and I told him, and he said, and then Marie, his wife, who's from Northern Ontario, said, oh, he's Italian. She said, I, you know, I grew up all among all these Italians, and, and so on. So, so she immediately decided that he was okay, too, because he was Italian. And uh, so, you know, we, these are shortcuts that we were able to make because, uh, because we could connect, and, uh, uh, you know, and we, we, we weren't regarded as foreign, I guess, in that even though there were many points of difference, um, certainly of class and you know other other issues, um, but I did grow up listening to old people talk, and I really liked doing it. So I didn't start this project as an academic project until I'd kind of been doing it for almost twenty years anyway. Not uh, like I sometimes recorded, but not usually recorded. Mm. And I was reluctant to turn it into an academic project because I. I guess I didn't really want it to be work, and also I, I, I felt that that would increase the barriers between me and the people I might want to talk with when I became a professor wanting to interview them. Yes. Um, so I don't know if those are the kinds of things that you're yeah. curious about. Yeah, definitely. Um, actually, when you say um, that you didn't want to increase the, the distance between you and, and, and the people that you interviewed, uh, one, one thing I, I noticed about your work here is that you've done um, several workshops or uh, sessions to draw people in more. So the oral history workshops that you did, two of them, I think. Um, and I'm curious whether um, that did break down barriers the way that you hope to, um, and whether it, whether uh, people have people become more interested in oral history, or um, has a has a culture come come out of that? Mm, mm. Yeah. Well, um, yes and no, and it's something that I would like to pursue and and return to. Um, I had I ran two day long free community oral history trainings at ninety nine York Street, which is a community house in the neighborhood. And uh, they were well oversubscribed. Like I could have filled them, you know, each one I could have filled twice. And um, uh, but I decided I'd cap it at 15 people, so I did two at 15 people. And uh, my my hope was, in a sense, to de-individualize this project so that it could be part of a of a community practice, and that people would be interviewed. Because people would always say to me, "Oh, you know, my neighbor, you know, he loves to talk. You should you should interview him." And I thought, "Well, no, you could interview him. You know, that could yes. be how it went." Yeah. Um, in in actual fact, I'm not sure if indeed any of the, and, and I all made it clear also in these, these uh, workshops that you didn't have to be interested in doing oral history in this place. I mean, you could, you could take this wherever you wanted and you know, do whatever you wanted with it. Um, and, uh, but still, I'm not sure whether any of those 15 people are actively doing oral history interviewing at the moment. Uh, we did, 
we, we started up a thing we did once or twice where the idea was people could bring um, interviews that they had done and we could listen to them together. Oh, because I, I learned oral history from a woman named Suzanne Snyder and very much part of her practice is having these listening parties where interviewers and or people who are interviewed listen to interviews together. And whether that is to do with um, responding together or whether it's to do with uh, refining practice of interviewing and listening, um, it's, it's, it's really just a fabulous thing to do, to have this collective experience of listening and, and commenting. And um, so we did, we, we had one session like that, and a number of people came to it to come back, but nobody brought anything to play. And so they just, they <laughs> want to listen to my interviews. Um, so I feel like I haven't been that successful in generating, you know, or I don't think I have, but I may have. I need to get back in touch with these folks, and maybe we could do something like a reunion and a refresher or something yes, like that. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I, and I've done some other workshops as well, north of Kingston, and I, I, I like uh, introducing people to oral history because, um, I mean, on the one hand, it, it really is a discipline. Like, not all interviewing is oral history interviewing, or at least it's not, it's not how I would consider it to be oral history interviewing. And one of the things that I really try to cultivate, even if it's only a short workshop, is the, um, the, the discipline of not interrupting people, and I say discipline because I am terrible at it. I grew up in a family where everybody talks at the same time, and you have to or else you won't get a word in edgewise. And uh, so I feel that for me, uh, this kind of interviewing that lets the interview person take the lead um, has been really difficult. But one of the things this maybe can throw, I can throw things back in your court sure. at this point. Because when I was, uh, doing that training with Suzanne, um, and really a lot of, this was a nine-day intensive workshop that we did, a lot of the emphasis was kind of on this, leaving silences. And at the time, even, I was, I was pushing back against it, not just because I interrupt people all the time, <laughs> it was not just justification of my own nasty habits, but, mm -hmm. but also I really did feel like, isn't this a bit coercive? I mean, you know, somebody says something and you just sort of sit there and stare at them? Like, how nice is that? <laughs> and, and, you know, what are the power dynamics of that? So when I was reading your fabulous piece that everybody should read, I have to look up the title of it to make sure that I get it right, Ethical Questions About Working with Soundscapes. And uh, this, this is such a wonderful essay. And one of the sections is about the politics of silence and when silence is generative and when it is somehow coerced or controlled. And even in this sort of question about interviewing technique, I really, I really thought about that. Um, and in the section about silence, you talk about um, forced silence in prisons in the mm. 19th century. Mm -hmm. I've been to Eastern State Penitentiary. Have you been there? I've Did never you? been there. Wow. It's, it's actually a national historic site yeah. now. And it's, as it's got, it's a perfect panopticon. It's got all these wings coming out from the center. And because it was abandoned for 25 years and had trees growing up when they turned it into uh, a, a national historic site, they didn't, at least at the time I was there, they hadn't renovated all of it. Some of it had become sort of you know, made to be like it was in the 19th century. But some of it had been left kind of like it was in the 1970s with old barber chairs and bed springs and things. And then some of it had been turned into art exhibit space. Oh, you, wow. you should do something. Yeah, I should, I should definitely yeah. go there. Anyway, um, 
So that, that idea of, of enforced silence that's supposed to produce virtue but actually drives people crazy, uh, you talk about that a little bit. And um, you talk about what are, what are the differences among experiences of silence. The silence in a Quaker meeting with several people sitting together and mentally holding loved ones in the light of inspiration. The silence of a lonely prison cell where solitude and penitence is prescribed by those very same well-intentioned Quakers. The silence of a group of refugee families moving quietly through the jungle to avoid the gunshots of the army. The silence of a comfortable retreat in a remote rural soundscape with birds singing, perhaps cowbells in the distance. How much silence do we want? Under what conditions? Who is in control of the silence? Who can afford it? Who must maintain it on pain of death? And um, so in my interviewing practice, I, I feel like I, I'm still really kind of struggling to find the right amount of silence. And uh, I guess in Suzanne's case, uh, it comes partly from a psychoanalysis kind of background that she, she tries to be, remain the silent listener. Um, but in my circumstances, in the interviews that I've been doing, in the community that I've been working, uh, silence can be kind of rude, right. or it can be yeah. kind of tyrannical or dis disorienting. I do tell people when I start interviews that they won't necessarily experience it like a normal conversation, that I am going to try and leave some space for them to think about what they want to talk about next. Uh, and I think that's really important to kind of warn them about that. Uh, then other times I find myself getting back to my natural habits of interrupting them anyway. And I'm a bit torn, like, okay, so then when I started making podcasts, and it sort of contaminates the material, right? If you're talking over people. So what are your, what are your purposes and how do you think about what is the best way to leave things to posterity? For me to hide myself is in many ways dishonest. It's a kind of unethical practice for future people who may listen to this interview yeah. and all this stuff. Yes. Anyway, I wonder if you have any comments yeah. about, about this or advice for me. Uh, well, I, I guess, I mean, initially when I did interviews, I had thought of myself as somebody who really stayed quiet when other people were talking. But, um, I mean, the ethnographic interviews I did for my master's I just found I, I was I was speaking a lot more than I thought, um, and um, but I wasn't doing those interviews for uh, for to present as recordings later. So that 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 was good because I it gave me a chance to realize what I was doing when I was interviewing. Um, I think um, I don't. Yeah, I think that the silence can, can definitely, silence as the interviewer can be oppressive um, if it's complete. Uh, so I would try to time my intervention. So I was really, I mean, thinking about it to some extent as the interview was going on, when I was going to, uh-huh, or, you know, and I would also become quite animated with my body because yeah, we're in too. the same space. There's a lot of smiling and nodding. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of that goes on. <laughs> um, and I like, you know, in your recordings, I like the amount that you are there because you are from time to time you say, uh-huh, or you make a comment on something that someone says, but it doesn't come up that often. And so it feels like a good balance of, you know, I think it would be strange if your voice was not there at all. That, I, that would sound strange to me. Mm. Uh, so 
I think as a listener, I want a certain, certain amount of intervention from the interviewer to feel comfortable. And yet, at the same time, I don't want it to interfere what the interviewee is saying. So that's, it's a difficult balance to find, especially when you get excited about what the person's saying. It's really hard to stop yourself from um, overwhelming it with, with your presence, which is not, not what I want to do. Um, so yeah, I think that finding that balance is, is always a difficult one. But I think that you do very well in that regard. Well, you're, you're hearing these little tiny tidbits of, of exactly. these much more longer yes. interviews, of course. Yeah, and, um, yeah. That, that was so you I, choose the parts that you're going to use in the podcast as well, partly based on the interaction, partly based on the content, but also partly based on the interaction between yeah, the yeah, interviewer yeah. and interviewee. Well, and I should just say briefly before we go on that the first part of that sound clip that you played is really credit should be given to Phil Lichty, who was my audio producer for that. That starts, every of the six episodes starts with that, with the opening of the window. My clicking ankles are in there. I, I don't realize it is you, my, isn't it? My walking. ankles, my ankles are clicking as I go down the stairs, and then I open a window, and and that and um, so that was his concept that we would be opening the window to the outside space, and then I, you know, had to have the causeway in there. Um, but he wanted to have this kind of, you know, a bit of a an audio collage there. Um, we might have done more of that, except that I was really just limited by budget. Um, because uh, he was doing that part, and I only had so much money and so much time. Um, so, in a way, a lot, most of the audio texture in the pieces comes from the voices. But I'm, I'm just really kind of crazy about listening to all these voices and uh, how a lot of older people in Kingston have a very different way of speaking who've grown up here or lived here than people who've grown up and lived here now. And in particular, I wanted to have in that open collage people saying the phrase swamp ward because it's such a weird collection of sounds, swamp ward. And it just sounds so strange and it's hard to say, which I actually learned earlier because I was very strangely in a band before that was called the Swamp Ward Orchestra, which was just, it was one of those stupid band names that I regret infinitely, um, partly because it was appropriative at the time, like we had no idea what the Swamp Ward was, but we needed a name for a gig the next day, and then somehow we could never think of anything better. The other reason I hated it is that it can't be said by francophones, and we mainly were performing in Quebec, so for a, a francophone to say Swamp Ward Orchestra is impossible. So I wanted to have, I wanted to have in the opening of the thing, people saying that, swamp yes. ward, swamp ward, whatever, because that also became a question, like it is a big question, is do people use that term and what does it mean to them? But it's also just a funny collection of things that your mouth does. It is. And I found that amusing. So. And I think in that introductory collage, it really... Um, focuses right away on the grain of the voices. You know, uh, Roland Barthes' uh, term, I think, is so, uh, so redolent there that every voice is really different from the next one. Mm -hmm. So that um, even though they're re repeating the same word, it, the same words, it feels different with each mm -hmm. person and you get a sense of the different personalities who are going to be involved in the interview. So it's a really good introductory thing. But I want to say more about that introductory um, uh, uh, collage. Um, because it, I had a, I had a, a immediate response to it. Um, uh, the, 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 the going down the stairs, um, I thought about, 
uh, first of all, it, it's, it places it places the the listener in a particular time. Uh, because you're going down the stairs, you can't really hear any electrical noise in the background. So it feels like it could be in the 1920s. Uh, it could be now, but it could also be in the 1920s that somebody is walking down. So it, it kind of gives a, um, a, a time frame to the, to the, uh, to the piece. Um, and also I thought about how wood, uh, when you're walking on wooden steps like that, it registers your movement very well. So that if you live in a house that has those creaky floors, you can tell where people are in the house and you can also tell who is in a, a particular part of the house because you, you get a sense of people's gait through how they walk down the stairs. And I use that in the learning to walk piece. Well, I was going to say, um, it, actually, it isn't the walking part of this piece, but this, but this piece is called learning to walk. And, um, and it starts with you describing your walking as you are walking. That's not what the piece, the, the bit of it that I selected. Though. Yes. But uh, so, so the, and, and, and uh, this is a really profound and very personal piece, um, you know, quite different maybe from the others that we've listened to already, and I guess to give a bit of a uh, pre background, um, if I may say, yes. so, so, uh, so Andra was, was born with congenitally dislocated hips and spent uh, the time from 18 months to four years in a cast. So walking uh, which has become, you know, such a scholarly and artistic central part of her life, is also something that has been a problem and a challenge, and something that is very deliberate for you, yes. right? And I, I think it's it's so evoked powerfully in this piece. Um, but the other thing, besides the sound of walking and creaking and all that that comes out here, is the sound of bells. And uh, uh, so. What we hear in this little bit is actually Andra's mother talking, and um, she's talking about the use of a bell in the hospital um, to mark when visiting hours were over, she says. So it's just a little bit of the middle of the, of the piece. And um, yeah, maybe then the audience can ask questions and talk about sure. it. Sure, sure. It was really hard to do it. I don't know what I did. It was 
after the cast was removed, I was able to get outside. I was able to start playing with the other kids instead of watching through the window. I started running and jumping and never looking back, never thinking about what had happened with my head, trying to put that whole time on my mind. I felt like I was normal, like everybody else, that my hit was the same as everybody else's hit, that I could do everything that everybody else could do. <laughs> so, yeah, there are so many bells that you use in, this, in the sound environment there, not just the one that is like the one in the hospital, but these little tinkly ones and big, more church-resonant ones all the way through, and you use them. Sometimes they're so beautiful and kind of soothing, and other times they're just really violent and terrifying, and it's amazing the whole constellation of uh, emotions that you get from that bell. And it's, what's interesting is you don't really introduce what the bell is until halfway through the thing. At the beginning, we hear bells, and she's talking about other things, but we, it's only partway through that we hear that this was the end of visiting hours and, and, and related to trauma of separation from parents in that way and so on. So I just, well, I guess it's just a, a comment and a compliment. I just think it's so brilliant how that bell can say so many things emotionally in that piece. Well, I have to thank uh, Lawrence Stevenson at the CBC, because I was doing this for um, a CBC Out Front show, and he worked with me over a year and a half um, and um, uh, challenged me to, uh, to, because I had, I had spoken about the bells at the beginning, uh, the, 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 uh, the hospital bell, and then, as I was speaking to him, realized that I had this huge bell collection that I had made over the years. And I had never really thought about why I was collecting bells, but um, they were very handy in the making of the piece. And um, uh, so it was, it was, I started to think about the bells as characters, as having certain characters. And, um, and the hospital bell, I mean, the school bell that I got, the Ohio uh, bell maker who now makes them for the US prison population. So the same kind of timekeeping uh, with this very, uh, um, very loud, very insistent sound. And um, I mean, one of the things that I think about in that, I, and I didn't think about it at the time that I made the recording, but some years later, um, was that um, by the ringing of the bell, the staff of the hospital made me complicit in my own oppression and complicit in the oppression of all of the other parents and children in that ward because it was a room with 20 kids in it. So um, I thought that was very interesting too, that I, it, things that I didn't realize as I was making the piece that, that came to me later about and, the bells. And uh, you avoid uh, explicitly making the kind of pun about something ringing a bell, but I guess now that I think about it, because there's so much here about this memory that's buried and yes. how it comes and connects to your present life. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. How much denial uh, um, came into it um, and pain um, as the end of denial. <laughs> then you really have to confront people. 
but confront people, yes, and confront the, the, the um, experience. And as the physiotherapist says, um, uh, it's when the, when the body feels pain uh, and, and can't take it anymore, that's the point that you start to, to do something. And I think that's true uh, in terms of physical pain and emotional pain as well. So, yeah. Thank you so much, you both, Andra and Laura. Kip Pegley, uh, Andrew and I go way back uh, to graduate school. We so, do. and I have about twenty questions. Happily, um, but first of all, I want to. I also want to mention the belt because what's interesting to me about this week is that Andrew, I went through cancer treatment seven, eight years ago, and Andrew went through it after I got, after I finished. She started going through it. I hope it's okay. I'm disclosing that. And uh, this week on Facebook, you know, when those pictures come up, you know, three years ago, memory on Facebook, it was the picture of the bell that I put up for you. Because, yeah. of course, at the end of the chemo, there's a ringing of the bell. Yes. And I can't go near a chemo ward and hear the ringing of the bell without crying myself. Because that, to me, is just, right? I remember, I, because at the end of chemo, you get to ring the bell, the Liberty Bell. And I rang it, and I went back, and I rang it again. <laughs> and I was just kind of this crazed bell ringer in that day, because you finally get to finish. But I believe there's also a story for you about being in a workshop where you were on the ground and you had a bodily memory. Yes. Can you share that? Yes, so uh, another part of that piece is, um, it was a, actually a piece that I made called Coiled Chalk Circle. And uh, it was to do with um, custody issues because um, I had gone through a very painful custody battle with my ex-husband and my children only lived with me part of the time, and it, it, it caused a, that caused a lot of emotional pain. And, um, and when, I was, when I made that piece, I thought, well, it, it, Coiled Chalk Circle, the, the title comes from uh, an old story of the chalk circle where, where the, the judge makes a circle on the ground, and then there's a, there's a custody dispute. Both, two women both say that they're the mother of a child. So the, the judge makes the, the chalk circle, puts the child in the middle, tells each mother to take one arm and pull. And they can pull the child out of the circle and, and be the mother. And one of the women lets go. And he says, right, you are the mother. And, um, and I thought, what what the legal system does is make a coil out of that circle so that you're going back over and over and over again, and it's never finished. Um, and uh, so I, I worked with a choreographer and did, did the, um, uh, I'm not gonna do it right now because I'll screw up my back, but um, I, did a, uh, I did a choreography for the piece and I was thinking about coils and I started making a coil, see, I can't help myself. Uh, I, I started making a coil of my body, turning around and reaching back with one hand to hold a child's hand. And when I did that, that created a lot of pain and I ended up going to a physiotherapist. And that was really the beginning of the piece because I, I yeah, the pain, which was both emotional and physical, made me go and start both physiotherapy and psychotherapy to try to come to terms with what was happening with me and to try to cope with it. So yeah, that was a very, very
very uh, important movement of my body, I think, yeah. Um, with my own work, I was thinking about interviewing in silence, which is so incredibly important. And with my work over the last number of years, I've been interviewing um, returning soldiers, veterans, and their relationship with sound in wow. Afghanistan especially. Wow. And what really struck me as I was setting up those interviews over the last number of years is that so many of them, because of their trauma, because of their post-traumatic stress, they will not meet in a private place, which I fully respect. So many of my interviews are in Tim Hortons. Most of them are in Tim Hortons. Some are in Starbucks. Starbucks is a particularly hard place to hold interviews because of the sound of the um, cappuccino machine. Right. And I remember at first, you know, you've got the recording, you're, you're talking, and, it's, and things are going well. And of course, there's always that negotiation at the beginning. And I'm a military brat, and I served in the reserve, so you get, you know, you you get to have your story and be able to prove your, your legitimacy within this context. But the sound of the cappuccino machine comes on and just going, <sighs> right? But then, of course, realizing that it is only because of the cappuccino machine that we can have this discussion because, again, for so many soldiers, many of them could not travel at night because of their stress. So they, the interviews had to be held during the day, which is the loudest times. But also, the sound of absolute silence in the field usually meant some sort of danger mm -hmm. because there's always a generator playing or some sound. So if there is silence, they freeze. Yes. Not all of them, of course, but for so many of them. So I, I relied upon the sounds of Tim's and Starbucks. I'm wondering about the two of you talking about your interviewing context. Were they always within more you know, quieter spaces <laughs> of the interviewees or how did you work with external sound or did that become part of the sound? Because yes. there's never really silence. Yes. Right. So how did you work with those external yeah. sounds? Do you want to go first or shall I? Uh, yeah, well, I guess uh, I, I, I wonder uh, whether my interviewing practice was in some ways uh, altered when I started thinking about making podcasts. Before I started thinking about making podcasts, I wasn't so worried about noise like that. Uh, although, indeed, the oral history training, the sort of classic oral history training, is much obsessed with making sure that the, you're not near a refrigerator and you're not near a barking dog and all this kind of thing. Um, but I, I think, again, along the lines uh, of um, the issues that Andra's written about in her piece about the ethics of soundscapes, um, that kind of aiming at hi-fi is uh, really uh, removing... Uh, what might be comfort in your case, or or what is the real world? What is the context of this of this of this conversation in this discourse? And so I really, uh, especially, have been thinking about almost the environmentalist um, imperative to have the world represented as well as the individual, because we we suffer by focusing on on individual humans too much without their context. The whole point of your interview is to get at that. Uh, the oral context, but also the socio-political, military con context. And so I think a noisy recording is, is perfect in that way. It, it can become a lot harder to, to work with, mm. um, at least for a kind of journalistic purpose. You could do a lot artistically with, with the more noisy stuff, and I don't know whether you have permission or intention to do any of that. Um, at the Oral History Association conference, there are an increasing number of people talking about the merits of noisy recordings and the merits of bad recording. Um, uh, and uh, I know this guy um, in Manitoba, Ken Davies, 
was working with farmers, he says, well, you can never get a farmer to sit down. If you want to talk to a farmer, you have to follow them around. Yes. And you're going to get, sometimes you won't be able to hear them practically because of the machinery <laughs> and so on. But, but that's what they sound like. Yes. Uh, so I, I think it's a, it's, it's a balancing act, really. But uh, I, I think both aesthetically and politically uh, so fascinating to just be aware of. Even I always try not to worry about it too much. You get in the middle of an interview and things happen. And I just, ultimately, it's the, it's the act of listening that's the most important. And so I try to turn off my kind of thinking about future uses um, chatter in my head at that moment, try not to get distracted by it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really, it's, it's a really important thing to do, I think, to, to let go of that because there are, I mean, the very first piece that I did, um, I did a, a terrible recording. It was in my car. It was using one of those, you know, the uh, kind of rectangular, uh, almost a dictaphone kind of thing with a, a, you know, so it was a very old recorder, very, very low tech. But I happened to be with two teenagers who were talking about video games and they were talking in a very uh, real way. And I wanted those recordings, so I used them. I didn't, I didn't try to do it again. I, I kept working with uh, that recording. And I knew it was a bad recording right from the beginning, but, the, but what was most important to me was what the, what the kids were saying. Um, and so when I did the Lachine Canal project, which was probably the one that I used the most interviews with people in, in the project that ended up in, in, um, uh, out there uh, instead of just for, for my research, um, in in uh, in those in those interviews, I would ask uh, I would ask the interviewee if we could go to the part of the canal that they were talking about and record it there, and then um, I walked along the street in Lachine that was right by the canal and went into businesses where I knew there were older people, and <laughs> I got my hair cut by a barber who was 85 years old and who had been in that barber shop while the canal was open in the 50s. I mean, it was just a, an amazing um, opportunity. And he had other customers in there who would comment on things. And so it was a very, uh, very everyday experience. And, and, uh, and, but I think perhaps because I'm working with everyday sounds as the focus, it was fine that the sound of the, his um, his um, clippers clippers right were were uh, were kind of interfering with the, the the sound of his voice. I mean, they really did go together, and that was what he did every day was was to cut people's hair and talk to them about whatever they wanted to talk about. And in my case, it was the sound of the the uh, canal and the ships on the canal. So um, I really welcome that uh, being in somehow being in a place that's related to to the the interview material, and and I think the hi-fi lo-fi thing it, that that I wrote about is related to 
what, what you were writing about, about self-absorption and self-reflection. Uh, because in order to make a hi-fi sound, a really hi-fi sound, you need to go into a studio and you need to absorb all of the sounds around it so that that sound becomes individual, it becomes uh, clear, uh, it becomes an, um, almost like a sculpture that it's that kind of clarity. Um, and that is sound absorption. And I think that self, you know, when we become self-absorbed through that, um, through over-reflection on our own, without any interaction with other people about their ideas and thoughts and feelings, then the same kind of isolation can happen. Uh, so I think that um, I think that sound absorption and self-absorption is something that I want to think about more in, in the future uh, because of that. Uh, so I don't look for a hi-fi situation and uh, maybe it's, uh, so it's probably a strength and a weakness of my work, both, I would say. Hi, Martha Whitehead. This has been fascinating. So many thoughts that I'd like to explore. I wanted to mention that um, at one point you were talking about silence, and so I was trying to look up the lyrics for Sound of Silence, and I hit the wrong button and I got the oil thigh. So I don't know if people, <laughs> people heard that, but I thought it was a, a perfect Queen's moment. But, um, but the reason I was, I was looking up those lyrics is um, something that was mentioned, in, and then Kip mentioned something that made me think about this as well. I often feel at odds with the public environment when I'm in, say, an, an airport or somewhere where I feel like the soundscape is designed for somebody who's not me. And I wonder if you have any observations just about the use of sound in public space and, and the sort of design of that and how that's influenced your, your work. Yes, yes. Uh, um, I think that um, uh, you said your sensitivity to um, um, sound is, is, is it mostly in airports or is it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's public spaces where I'd rather be with my thoughts and I have to listen to music that I don't really want to listen to. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think the, the, the music that, that is put there in public spaces is intended to create a kind of um, brand or um, feeling, atmosphere for that particular part of the public space. And um, it's, it's not really uh, intended for you, it's intended for, for them. And, um, and yet, at the same time, I think some people are very uncomfortable with public spaces where there is no music. And is that, does that relate to Kip's point about the silence is, feels like danger? It can feel like yeah. danger, or it can feel boring, or it can feel um, uh, that it's uh, unfamiliar. Uh, so sometimes when people go, some people sometimes when people go through a mall, for instance, they'll hear familiar songs and be drawn to certain parts of the mall. Um, yeah, so I think there's a there's a, there's a there's a lot of difference between uh, people about how they how they react to sound in public space. For instance. Um, uh, David Paquette, who was uh, um, one of my graduate students, 
did um, a study of um, restaurants in, uh, in Vancouver uh, in, in a particular area and how there was a restaurant with espresso machines and very reflective surfaces all over the place. And people would go there to have private conversations because they could sit at the table, talk about whatever they wanted, as you, I mean, you were having private conversations that were also about trauma. So to give you that kind of wall of sound as privacy really, really, it made that a, an important place to go. And, I, and so David Paquette found the same thing, that people were choosing to go to these restaurants because they were very noisy and familiar at the same time. And so the, the, I think the, you know, the airport is probably noisy and unfamiliar to you. And then, of course, there are differences between airports. There are some airports that are much... Um, much better designed for sound and also for um, for other other things that we sense um, smells and and th things that you look at and tastes that you can have in airports. So some airports are very well designed and some some not so much in terms of sound. Yeah. It, silence does have a sound, of course. Like so, people who do recordings know, you know, the room sound. This this room clearly has, you know, by the way it's designed, produces or or prevents certain kinds of resonances. So yeah, to me, I I think it's interesting too how sometimes well the distinction between hearing and listening. Like you can be in a silent place, like a library. I thought you were going to say something about library. <laughs> and, the sound. Um, and all of a sudden you notice it's creeping you out, <laughs> you know, but it's been the same kind of, you know, and, and, and uh, so, and some people, yeah, I think do find the absence of music is kind of, um, it, it makes you feel exposed or mm -hmm. something, you know, mm -hmm. that, that you can have that. I'm Francine Barish. I observed, uh, while both of you were talking, that there's a fair amount of serendipity to the work that you're doing. So recording something unplanned or leaving the recording going in your pocket for two hours and, and seeing what you get, or you know, being guided at a particular time and place. How do you plan for, or I mean, how do you work with that serendipity and embrace it in projects that you're likely having to propose sort of far in advance of having that eureka moment? <laughs> Well, um, this train piece is maybe a good example. Um, uh, when I was uh, teaching um, and, uh, and uh, doing research uh, full-time, I, um, I would apply for grants. So I had to talk about what I was going to be doing five years from now. And I did find it constraining in terms of um, you know, being able to describe what I was going to do when I was probably going to do other things. Um, and um, so now, this project, I didn't apply for a grant, so I didn't have to say to anyone what it was going to be. Uh, New Adventures in Sound Art came out with a, uh, a call for works, and I wrote to them and said, this sounds like a really good um, topic that you've chosen as, as, as your... Um, as, for the festival this year, and I would really like to do something, but I have this piece that I'm just starting. I don't know what it's going to be. But 
they had worked with me before when I used to be much more clear. And, um, and they, they trusted me to do something interesting. So I didn't have to tell them ahead of time. And uh, as I've been working on the piece, they've been very open to just hearing every once in a while, well, how are things going and what's happening now? And, and so we're having a conversation that's able to develop over months about what should happen with this piece. And I think that's by avoiding some of the institutional structures that, that I have been part of in the past. And it was one of the things that I was really looking forward to as a new independent scholar now, as a, as a, as a retired um, professor, to be able to spend more time on projects where I didn't have to articulate everything way ahead of time. Because I found that in the past, the, the other big project that I did that was not... Um, it was not institutionally funded, was Soundwalk to Home, and that project I've thought about probably more than any other one that I've done. So, uh, because it came from so a deep personal need that I think I had at the time, rather than um, a kind of articulation of certain issues or a focus on, on a particular place, it was to do with my neighborhood, so something much more um, personal. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, a really uh, challenging question um, because depending on the source of funding and the way your job situation is and everything, you may or may not have the freedom to change directions as you go. And um, and I, I feel like I now do, and so I'm doing it. <laughs> um, some of it comes from the ethos of, again, of oral history interviewing, which is... Which, which means that I have 80 interviews that are completely different from each other. And sometimes people talk about really personal stuff and sometimes they just talk about the corner stores or you know their cars or whatever, and it's all really different. And then when I decided later on to make podcasts, it wasn't like I could just go to question number seven with every interview and then make that the theme of the podcast. And so it gets a lot more labor intensive if you're then trying to figure out what the through lines were, but they were really through lines that just appeared as the thing happens, and sometimes you don't have the right recording for the thing that you know happened and all that. Um, and in, in the case of the podcast, I was really lucky to have Phil Lichty working with me, who was able to both work with lots of little bits and pieces and also, and also tell me when, like, well, I don't care, Laura, you may like that person saying that thing, but nobody will understand what he's saying, so we can't use it, and we would find other ways around it. Um, but uh, I was really struck when I said, this is the first time I ever made audio documentaries, like I'm not, this is, I'm not a pro, and I was struck by lack of models in a way, because I felt like I had to be somewhere between a kind of journalistic, NPR-ish type of podcast, and uh, more of an art piece because I knew that the people in the community would, um, well, I wanted them to be represented as historical subjects who were telling some things about things that actually happened, and they wanted that too. I think that was the sort of understanding. This was a history project. So I felt that um, I wanted there to be a certain amount of kind of authority given to the information that they were providing, and that it would be clear that it was information. Mm. Um, but at the same time, 
uh, because I hadn't interviewed them in such an organized way, what I was struck by when I went back to listen to the material was the more just the quality more of their voices and, and wanting to collage them together so that it wasn't about individuals, it was about a kind of collective experience. And uh, so I wasn't going to do like you would do if you were, I don't know, you know, PRX, go back and interview them again. I decided that wasn't going to happen. It was partly logistics, but it was partly principle. Like I was, in that way, a sort of found sound. Like the, right. whatever they said at the time was what I had to work with. Because Phil said, can't you go back and interview them again? I said, nope. no. But it was partly just like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> but it was partly just like, no, I want this to be an experiment and whatever we got, we're going to work with. And um, so it was an interesting contradiction in a way of wanting to create these sort of six themes that emerged out of what most people seem to talk about. Um, and yet in order to do that, it involved a huge amount of stitching and quilting and cutting and all that in order to in a sense try to stay out of the way mm. <laughs> I had to do so much more work than if I had gone out and interviewed in a director so so I it it, it uh, I, I'm still interested in that paradox and thinking about what it means for future practice but um I was so lucky because I had two different grants from the city of Kingston. The first one was supposed to be for podcasts and the second one was supposed to be for something else. And I was only halfway through doing the podcast when I ran out of time and money on the first one and I went back to them and said, can I switch what I'm doing for the second one? And they said, yes. Like these are these kind of bottom line things. And if they hadn't said yes, I wouldn't have the podcast. It's, it's when you allow yourself to kind of go free range or something with these things, it's... It's kind of, you don't know what's going you to happen. You don't know what's going to happen, that's yeah. true, yeah. Um, hi, I wanted to ask, uh, just for my own benefit, uh, who are the thinkers that have most shaped your thought? So, Well, know. I think one person is Paolo Freire, because we both have referred to Paolo Freire. I mean, I'm thinking of that recent article that I read of yours, where you talk about his, um, his approach to... Uh, working with groups of people uh, and um, his, uh, his respect for people's knowledge um, and uh, his use of group conversations as a way to get people to realize how much they already know. Uh, or at least that is one of the things that, that appealed to me about Paolo Freire's work when, when I uh, first read it. Um, I think another uh, uh, thinker who's very important to me is Donna Haraway uh, and her ideas about situated conversations. Um, and, uh, and then there are fa several makers who are... Who are um, uh, um, who are important to me. Um, of course, now I've forgotten names. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, Agnes Varda. I don't know why her name disappeared, but Agnes Varda, the, um, the documentary The Gleaners and I, uh, I think is a really interesting uh, documentary in terms of her relationships with the people who are in the documentary and how she goes back and does a second film two years later where she asks people about their 
contributions to the documentary, and they critique her, and it's all there in the mm. second film. And I think that that is amazing. It's just such, uh, it's like in your article you talk about you never finish. Well, and yes, Varda never finishes things. She goes back over and over again. Laurie Anderson is another maker that I'm really interested in. And she's, she has been criticized by people because they say, oh, she goes back and, and, and go, refers to that thing that she did 10 years ago. Well, I think that's fantastic to recontextualize something that you did 10 years ago so that you can reflect on what's changed over that time. Um, or, I mean, her work really inspires me because of that, the through points of, uh, of the work. Mm. So those are a few. I mean, there are, there are, there are more people, but those, those are a few people who have influenced me. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a hard question to answer on the spot. I think one, one, <laughs> one, uh, one person that comes to my mind uh, is, um, is Mikhail Bakhtin, because uh, through my literary background, my literary study background, I think that he was one of the theorists who really first really got me thinking about multiple voices and how and how literary art that has social value has to be made up of multiple voices or how we can kind of excavate them even when they may not be apparent. And um, so, I, and I keep going back to Bakhtin. Um, but I was thinking of something, some, some other figure we have in common, uh, sometimes as maybe uh, an antagonist as much as an inspiration, which is Armory Schaefer. Oh, boy. Uh, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I first encountered him when I was in a choir as a teenager, singing, uh, singing compositions that he did. And then uh, I gave my first sound walk and, uh, in in uh, the parking lot of uh, Harborfront in probably like 1987 or something like that, inspired by Schaefer, as I was teaching music at a day camp and I took all the kids up to the parking lot and made them make lists of things they were hearing and so on. And, um, but what I found so interesting in recent years, uh, partly through conversation with you and, and uh, more awareness of um, the colonial history of natural spaces, has been to go back and, and think more critically about Schaefer and um, how, on the one hand, uh, you know, he has invited people to take listening uh, to public spaces seriously, but on the other hand, uh, has had a, such a, uh, I think, a gendered and colonialist approach in various ways. I mean, the gender issue is one that interests me a lot about whether there's, um, what, what parts of listening are gendered. And uh, so I, I, I'm, I've kind of, I'm going to go back and read some more Schaefer actually again, because now I feel kind of ready to re-engage with that kind of ancestry. Yes. Well, there is, there's one uh, Schaefer article, it's a very early one, called Music in the Cold. And that one makes very clear the racist and sexist underpinning of much of what he said later. Um, and I think it has not been studied enough. I think that was from the uh, mid-60s that he did that. I'm not sure about that date. But anyway, um, Music in the Cold is definitely worth taking a look at in terms of his thinking when he was coming up with these ideas about working with sound. Um, and he tells, a, he tells a story in there, a parable about the world which is to do with music in the cold and what could potentially destroy it. And um, 
I won't say any more about that piece <laughs> for now. I'll let you discover it for yourself if you want to. Um, but yes, I, I think initially um, my ideas about sound walks when I started using that specific term for, for uh, listening and recording while walking. Um, a lot of them uh, came from my interactions with Hildegard Westerkamp, mm -hmm. who's, um, who has been a, a, a very important part of the acoustic ecology movement. And initially, I, um, I, I felt like I was doing a bit of an apprenticeship with her and, uh, and really um, took things the same way that she would, which was the world soundscape approach to, to working with sound. And then as time went on, I started to question those things more and more. And especially the influence of, uh, of R. Murray Schaefer um, because as I, I, as I did the research and I found that initial essay, it made me rethink many of the things that he was saying about the listener being and the, like the unpainted observer in a, a group of seven painting. Um, the word soundscape itself is being uh, lifted from landscape art. Uh, so thinking about sound as something that you frame and control as well. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, in, in, uh, uh, in arguments with Schaefer, mm -hmm. he has been a, a very big influence on... on and, and Laura and Matt's work that they're doing with the gun recordings of Algonquin Park is, is also one of the things that has, has made me return to Schaefer in a strange way, just to become so aware of... And what I still find with students are presuppositions still, those presuppositions about purity of sound and controlling it and all that kind of thing. Yes. So it's still very much there to be engaged with. Yeah, yeah it is. It is. I, um, I mean, that, that essay that you like that I wrote was for a um, World Forum of Acoustic Ecology um, a keynote. And and it was very controversial at the time. Like, and this is only 2010, it's not, not that long ago. Uh, so to, to question the hi-fi, lo-fi distinction, to question ideas about silence, became, it, it, became, um, yeah, it became very controversial in that context. So I realized it needed to be done and that it needed to be done more in that group than it has been done in the past. Warmest thanks again to you both. This has been a wonderful morning, uh, listening to you interact. But more than that, the generosity of listening that you've given each other and then the engagement you've provided us in the audience. Um, it's, it's been a beautiful experience. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you have been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I am Dr. Barbara Crowe, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science, music for this series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's University composer Marianne Mozedich. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.